and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Banks. Oh, I, forgot, I forgot that I usually say my last name. <laughs> We've only been doing this 11 years. Yeah. <laughs> Like I'm very, I'm used to a very specific timing. As you heard, I just started going yeah, right into right. it. Oh boy. Okay. So what's your next line? I say I'm David Bax. <laughs> and thank you for listening. Right. Yeah. Okay. Then, David. Yes. Bax. Yes. How you doing? Well, can't you tell listeners? Can you tell how we're doing? Can you hear? Can you hear how we're doing? What if they can't? Uh, I, I think they probably can. Let's hope so. Um, uh, even though we've complained about it more than any, only one listener ever said anything, and it was after we acknowledged yes. it. Yes. But yeah, we were ha- unhappy with the echo in the new studio, which is not really that new anymore. It's been no. months. Um, uh, but um, we finally got the, uh, the the sound paneling in the rug that we swore we were going to get, so... Yeah. Thank you for bearing with us. Again, no one complained. <laughs> and let's hope that it is making any difference at all. Thankfully, it wasn't In super expensive. In the sound expensive. check, it sounded like it was... It sounded okay. Yeah. That's <laughs> okay. why, why I had us do two sound checks, just so I knew. Okay. All right. All it right. was worth the money. It was worth the $3,500 we paid <laughs> on this stuff. Yeah, move that decimal point a couple places uh, to the left. Um, but speaking of money, though, what, what pays for all this stuff? Oh, my gosh. Our sponsors, that's who. Indeed. And, uh, listeners like you, I guess. Not like you. me? No, I don't I'm listen talking to this shit. Listeners like you. Okay. Uh, you can donate. You can buy our, uh, our premium content, which is how we prefer it. And I guess we should announce uh, in oh, a right. few weeks... We are going to have another round of commentaries available. Um, it is yeah. going to be the first four Harry Potter films. Yeah, for those of the, uh, for those of you who might be listening who don't know uh, the the layout here. Two times a year, we get a bunch of friends together. Tyler and I watch movies for hours straight and have our friends cycle through yeah. and watch them with us when we record commentaries, and then you can buy them, and it helps support the show, and it gives you something fun to listen to. So, yeah, our 2018 plan is to do all eight Harry Potter movies. We're doing four, the longer four, first. This is going to be the long, including when we did Lord of the Rings. Like, the, not the extended ones, thankfully. Right. Like, this is going to be the longest we've ever recorded for. This is going to yeah. be ten and a half to eleven hours. It's going to be so exciting. Um, and yeah, you can you can find that uh, Tyler will get it up as soon as uh, he recovers. <laughs> yeah. After, yeah, it'll be up by the end of April, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes, undoubtedly. Okay. So uh, yeah, that's something to look forward to. But yeah. Day to day, who pays the bills? Exactly, around here. exactly. Uh, you know, they punch in, punch out. Uh-huh. Uh, this episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have thirty days to watch it. That means there's always thirty wonderful films to enjoy, all for only eight ninety nine a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. All right. So, as we've mentioned uh, before. Uh, Philippe Garrel's uh, Lover for a Day was uh, distributed at various places uh, through the country, distributed by Mubi. It is now available on Mubi, streaming exclusively uh, there, and so they are presenting uh, the other films in Philippe Garrel's uh, Trilogy of Love, uh, Jealousy, and In the Shadow of Women. So all three of these movies are available now. Each is shot in gorgeous black and white and perfectly captures the anguish, beauty, and complexity of love. Uh, And then uh, there is also so a special offer for listeners of Battleship Pretension. You can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com. That's M-U-B-I.com slash Battleship to redeem now. Or go to BattleshipPretension.com and click on the Mubi ad. And I want to tell you about TweakedAudio.com, which is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Tyler and I 
each use them uh, separate pairs. We don't share a pair uh, each and every day of our lives. Uh, today on my tweakedaudio.com earbuds. Okay. Uh, have, you, uh, have you heard about there's a, uh, uh, on Spotify, a comp EP playlist thing called uh, Universal Love. It's a, it's a um, uh, LGBT benefit thing. Oh, okay. Um, and it's artists you've probably heard. Well, not you, Ty. Well, you've heard, even you've heard of some of these artists. Okay. Um, doing love songs to the same sex as that. Oh, okay. Basically, you've got, so you've got uh, some of them are cover, some of them are new. You've got St. Vincent doing And Then She Kissed Me. That's fun. Oh, okay, um, yeah. Oh, you wouldn't know. St. Vincent is a woman. Okay. Um, yeah, <laughs> I was going to be like, didn't know that. Uh, it's like somebody uh, did not get. Yeah. Uh, you've okay. got uh, Benjamin Gibbard doing And I Love Him, and you've got Bob Dylan doing hey. a song called He's Funny That Way. All right. Um, I've heard of him. Yeah. That's and I saw one. him in Oh, you concert. might have heard of Kesha. Kesha's on here. I've heard of. You've heard of Kesha. Her? <laughs> yes, you've All heard right. of her. All right. Yeah, she does a song called I Need a Woman to Love. So, anyway. That's just what I was listening to, and it all sounded terrific on my tweakedaudio.com earbuds. They're available at a low, low price at tweakedaudio.com, but if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one-third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Now. Yes. <laughs> That's enough uh, uh, fucking around. Uh, it's time to get to our guest. I don't think our sponsors would appreciate uh, being described as uh, fucking <laughs> being around. Characterized yeah. as fucking around. Um, n- no, but we were fucking around before that. That's true. Yes. Uh, and I, uh, I want to, I, I want to get to our guest. I uh, forgot to ask her how she'd like to be introduced, but luckily I found her title here on right. email. So from Collider.com, the senior editorial producer of Collider Video, Perry Nemiroff. I'm glad that I. I emailed you last with my new <laughs> fancy email signature. Yeah. My title changed recently. Oh, a whole, good. A whole nother uh, mishmash of fancy sounding words. Yeah. Yeah. Well, welcome to the show. Thank you I'm for being I'm so here. happy. I feel like we've been talking about doing this for a very, very long time. Well, yeah, because there was a time that I used to see you at Comic-Con every year. Only Comic-Con, because yeah. Because you didn't live here. Yep. I was in New York. Yeah. And then you moved here, what, less than two years ago? Exactly two years ago okay. in three days of this recording. Oh, okay. Well, okay. <laughs> I was really excited for a moment. <laughs> but now a- I feel a- weird that I April know. Like, 8th. <laughs> April 8th is the, was the official move-in date. Um, yeah, I, I feel like I shouldn't have known. I, sh- I shouldn't have been that close. It makes me feel weird. <laughs> um, but I guess I'm counting backwards from Comic-Cons. Um, <laughs> uh, I feel like I figure everything in my life out based on either a convention, a film festival, or just when a movie was released. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's probably about, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> I used to, I mean, for a lot, a long time, it was based on jobs or apartments, mm. but I've been in the same apartment now for going on eight years and I've been not in the same position, but at the same workplace for seven years. So now, yeah, it, it has to be things like comic cons and, no. and, and whatnot. Um, 
But that's neither here nor there. Thank you again for being on the show. Thank I'm glad we finally made me. it happen. Yeah. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Very, very, very busy, which is why this took lo- so sure. long to schedule. It was yeah. pretty much all my fault. Yeah, because we're just <laughs> sitting around. Yeah. We just kind of just like powered down when the show is is off and we just stay here. You should um, have some uh, cats to maybe keep you company if they come out. They're around, you know. Yeah. When they want to be fed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'll start just by asking the questions that I always ask uh, people when they first come on the show. Where are you from? I am from Long Island, New York. I grew up in the same house in the same neighborhood that my father grew up in. So we went to the same high school and everything. And then I never left New York. I moved to New York City and I stayed there. And I thought I was going to stay there for my entire life. But here I am. And I'm, I'm assuming work brought you out here yep collider relocated me so i could work wow. in the studio here rather than just doing junkets and writing in new york so once video became the top priority for me mm-hmm. it was kind of a no-brainer that i should be out here i think the bigger decision was would i actually have the guts to pick up and move yeah and i'm still to this day shocked that i ever did so i was gonna um, ask is it is it uh, i have to assume it's fairly Heartbreaking to leave this place that not only your family is such a big part of, but also your plan was to live there the rest of your life and then die there. And then if you had children, <laughs> they would also live in the same house. That actually pretty much sums up exactly what my plan used to <laughs> okay. be. Yeah. Um, my whole family is still in New York. And okay. after I graduated undergrad, I went to grad school, film school in New York City. And every single person when we graduated, everyone's like, all right, I'm out of here. I'm moving to L.A. I'm going to start my career. I'm like, hey, there is a film industry here in New yeah. York. We will all be fine. Just stay here with me. Everybody left. And eventually I was like, oh, you know, maybe I should. And now that I'm here thinking back to my mind frame, then what was wrong with me? There is so much more opportunity. Not that you can't do it in New York, but there is so much more opportunity out here. New York seems like the type of place that, okay, if you live almost anywhere else in the country, maybe even in the world, uh, and you say, I was born here and I'm going to die here. People will be like, come on. But New York, I feel like people are like, hey, that's great. Look at you. There's <laughs> you know? also the beauty of Manhattan sure, versus sure. Long Island. Every single year <laughs> I ever lived in the city, if I ever got sick of it, if it got too crazy, too much, all I had to do was hop on the LIRR and go back out to my parents' place. And I had a little breather for the weekend. So I kind of had the best of both worlds living there. Uh, now... We, uh, we know that Los Angeles is an acquired taste. It took me about a year and a half. I've heard people say as long as three years. Some people never like it. You're at a two-year mark. I feel like you're at the point where you should ha- maybe have a have a point of view. Do you like Los Angeles? I like <laughs> Los Angeles very much. I think I was a little spoiled when I moved here, though, because I was really nervous about leaving New York overall, but I thought I was going to miss New York City more, and it's mostly just the friends and family that I miss now. Hmm. I moved to to a street with some things that were walking distance from my apartment, which mm, I think good. was very, very important for me. Have Because I was also living dead smack in the middle of Times Square. Oh, so I had oh, everything wow. I could ever imagine 24-7 right outside like, my door. Uh, Greta Gerwig in Miss America. Right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> everything was just going 24-7 and I really could just 
get I can get food, anything here that is not the case. Yeah. But at least I can walk outside my door. I can walk to a movie theater. I can walk to, I mean, maybe a dozen restaurants, Starbucks. So the fact that I had that made me feel like I wasn't locked into some sort of, you know, middle of nowhere suburban area where I had to drive a car everywhere. I totally know what you mean. Here in North Hills, like (laughs) I can drive, I can walk to a Denny's. (laughs) <laughs> a se- like after a certain time at Denny's, a Seven Eleven, and a couple of strip clubs. So yeah, I know exact. I I have what I need. The key there is a Seven Eleven, though. Yeah. I will say the one thing that I miss so much about Manhattan that you don't have two things actually that are very hard to find in LA is one a good diner. There's really right. yeah. not very many good diners, and I'm not talking about some sort of weird spin on a diner. A classic diner where you can get scrambled eggs in the middle of the night or a grilled cheese at any hour of the day. And it's super greasy and amazing. No good diners. And then also there's no like corner stores with, with like a deli counter and, oh, and right, yeah. that that's kind of what a seven eleven is for me here. Yeah, when we lived in Chicago, like there were a number of like diners. Like I remember was it every Thursday that we would walk to get groceries yeah. and then stop off at that place that didn't whose name was not on the outside of the which I loved. Which yeah. was great, yeah. It had a name, but I didn't know what it was. Yeah, but that, yeah, that was a, a Chicago thing where, and well, I guess, yeah, a New York thing too, where yeah. the diners are uh, mostly owned by Greek families, and yes. so you can get yes. uh, a lot of great Greek food uh, at a diner, which we've t- I've talked uh, very recently in the podcast about how I've discovered that the equivalent here in Los Angeles is the place that is, like, uh, secretly a Korean restaurant. Yes. I just, like, there's places, there's there's one in, there's one in Burbank uh, on Olive, there's like there's a, a submarine, uh, a sub shop that also has great, like, barbecue beef. There's one there's a there's a burger place like practically across the street from here. This is a, I've talked about this a lot on the podcast, it's but it's so a, random. it's a thing that like because I get a lot of Koreans end up being like uh, you know Korean families uh, own these these eateries and they brand themselves as one thing that's sort of typically yeah. you know an American lunch type of thing, but then they also make their you know their food on the side, so you can also get great <laughs> Korean food. Clearly, I have not explored <laughs> nearly enough in my two years out here. Now, uh, are you you mentioned that you you you. Uh, came from Burbank. Uh, do you live in Burbank? Yes, I do. Oh, sorry, that's a weird thing to yeah. ask. I apologize. I try. What I mean, really, <laughs> the Burbank bubble is a really big bubble. That's It'd be difficult a, yeah. to figure it out. Right yeah. at kind Bob of. Hope Airport. Um, what I was going to ask is, uh, have you been to Coral Cafe? Coral Cafe? Coral what is Cafe. this? It is uh, 24 hours. It is, it's not necessarily a diner vibe. Okay. Part of it is. But the other part is just kind of a standard, like... uh, Like a family restaurant. It seems like a family restaurant until... You know, you're there at 2 a.m. and a guy, st- and you hear like a loud noise, and a guy stumbles in, and he drunkenly had in his car burst through like their outer wall in their patio area, came in and said like, "All right, just give me a bill for that." And then he sat down and ordered food. <laughs> and uh, but yeah, it's it's also the- supposedly haunted the Coral Cafe. I've heard that. That yes. makes me want to go there even more. Yeah. You can find YouTube videos uh, the f- showing ghosts on the security footage or whatever. Oh, yes, you please. mentioned that, and I don't remember, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, and so. Uh, uh, and and they have a very extensive menu. I'm not. I can't guarantee that everything on that menu is good. They have pizza. I'd say avoid it. It's not all supposed to be good. <laughs> exactly. That's right. the thing about a diner is they give exactly. you pages and pages in a menu, and then you you just know. Like you yeah. don't even need to look at that giant menu. You just know what you need at two o'clock in the morning. Yes. Right. 
Coral Cafe. Coral Cafe. I highly recommend it. I'm not going to forget that. I am going to look that up. It's good stuff. It's Um, on, I believe it's on. It's on Burbank. It's on Burbank, yes. Okay, okay. Uh, Anyway, that's enough recommendations. We 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 are we already talked uh, Valley uh, uh, Valley Living and Valley Eateries before we started recording. That's true. Right? Yes. Um, uh, and you told yeah, an embarrassing I, story about me. Um, it's not that bad. It wasn't right. that bad, actually. There there was some sense to that decision. Uh, all right, but Damn that's right uh, that's was. enough of a of a, of a tease. Um, yeah, so uh, I, f- I was going to say something about Los Angeles. I forgot what it was. Maybe we'll come back to it. Uh, let's talk about you as a movie fan. Obviously, you like movies. That's Quite a uh, bit. What you seem to have you know, devoted your life to. Yeah, uh, pretty much. Uh, when did that start? Did you have an older sibling? Were you uh, 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 a weird lonely kid like I was? <laughs> or I had uh, parents and grandparents who let me watch whatever I wanted, uh, nice. whenever I wanted. So I grew up watching certain things way too young. I remember I was very young when uh, Batman Returns came out. I remember growing up with the fear of the penguin, but whenever I was scared of something, I was always excited by that fear, if it yeah. makes any sense. It's like most kids, when they're lying awake at night and they're hiding under the covers and they can't sleep, that's a terrible thing for some weird reason. I got a thrill out of it, which is why I love horror movies. But Jurassic Park changed everything. We're talking about it a lot at Collider right now because we were doing a top 10 Spielberg list video mm-hmm. series. Mm-hmm. And Jurassic Park is my favorite Spielberg movie. It's my favorite movie of all time. And it was the very first time I can remember in my life Life, processing the value of movie magic and how special it is to be fully consumed by a movie and have this crazy concept feel so real and exciting. And ever since then, it wasn't just about going to the movies and having fun. It was being able to have fun with the story that I was enveloped in, but also having an appreciation for this incredible craft that can transport you like that. Spielberg is that he is that filmmaker. Like for me, it's not my favorite movie anymore. It's like my third, but Jaws was that for me. Like solid choice. Just and and for some it's Raiders, for some it's ET. Like just he is this is going to sound insulting. I don't mean for it to like he not, he's he's where a lot of film fans start. Oh, sure. Yeah. And then and from there they branch out. That's not to say they Go, they get past him because chances are you circle back around and realize like oh shit on top of being like a really good entry point into filmmaking he's a damn good filmmaker on top of everything he's else still doing good stuff I mean I haven't seen Ready Player One but um, the post was great I thought I, I uh, liked the post quite a bit and I did see Ready Player One did you see Ready Player One? I did One? see what'd it what'd you think? I liked it I okay. liked it a lot I didn't love it I liked it a lot had a lot of fun with it I'm also a book reader, too, and it's a difficult one not to compare to the book. There's certain elements that I'm being a big fat baby about where I'm like, (laughs) oh, you got rid of that thing that I love so much. You can't do this in two hours and 20 minutes, what he achieved in that whole book. But if you had to condense that book into one movie, into one single adventure, I think he did a pretty damn good job. Do you think it would be an interesting miniseries? I was thinking about that because I think the only way you could really hit the same level of character development and world building that Ernest Cline did is if you did either a franchise or a TV series. I mean, two hours and 20 minutes just isn't enough. I do think that that with, with I don't have a lot of experience with the book. I've heard, frankly, like more negative things. And I did like the movie more than I thought based on on that. But certainly 
it's high concept, but because it is a world of just really endless possibilities, like it could be a whole series mm-hmm. um, if they, you know, if a network was ambitious enough. And I think I wouldn't rule it out. It's something that could happen in the future. It would require a lot of money. I wouldn't mind if they did that. I mean, it is pretty successful at the box office at no. this point in time. It had an it had an okay opening weekend, and I think at the international box office, it made a really good yeah. chunk of change. Yeah. I think it did better that, uh, domestically. I think it did better than people expected. Yeah. Like people were saying like, ah, it's not going to be, they weren't going to, they didn't say it was going to be a bomb, but it was not going to perform super well. And then, uh, it surprised some people. I think word of mouth actually helps. And the, yeah. the South by Southwest pre- premiere was probably mm-hmm. a smart move. Yeah. Cause it seemed like there was with the, the ad campaign and stuff, there was a lot of skepticism from people like me, especially. And I do think that the, um, positive reactions from even some people who had been skeptical on Twitter at South by really, I think helped. Uh, I, I still haven't seen it, but um, I will someday. Um, <laughs> but I want to go back to Jurassic Park because uh, you said some things that really, that, that I really agree with. Um, I'm, uh, I've long been an advocate advocate because I, I fell in love with movies, you know, in the basement in the middle of the night on VHS. Like I'm a solo movie viewer, but I think one of the, my earliest memory of like, Oh wow. Seeing a movie in a theater with a lot of people adds something, you know, or, or, or is a different experience. And it was a horror type moment. I, I just, one of my favorite film going memories is being a kid. I was in middle school or whatever. when that came out and, um, the scene when they're uh, from the lobby, they're climbing up to the duct and Lexi's mm. leg is dangling. The, the velociraptor is Lexi, right? Lex. 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 Uh, the velociraptor like jumps and almost gets her leg. Mm-hmm. And it's the entire theater like jumping, like screaming and jumping at the same time is, is like a crystal clear movie memory uh, in my mind. Uh, I- and it's one of the reasons that I, I'm not like a horror person the way that I think you are. But uh, if I had to, if I had to pick a genre of movies that I could only watch that movie for the rest of my life, like a genre genre. Sure. I would probably pick horror because, uh, I, I, I think that, um, it's so filmic in the way that it, uh, that horror often doesn't rely at all on, uh, on, on dialogue or traditional sort of drama. Yeah. It relies so much on the technique yeah. and the tone and sound and well, look and light. Wait until you see a quiet darkness. place. I can't wait to see that it. That is like exactly what you're explaining. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to seeing that. I uh, do. When I go see a horror movie, I'm always really, I, I have no doubt I'm going to love a quiet place except when I'm watching it. And I'm like, <laughs> this is exhausting to me. Like when I think about the kitchen sequence in Jurassic Park, I still like, it's been a long time since that movie came out. 25 years. I've seen that the kitchen sequence many times. And even now when I think about it, I'm like, okay, all right. It's, I'm all right. I'm okay. Like, <laughs> the benefit of a movie that still holds up uh, yeah. so many years later. My big memory for one particular scene was when I, I think I was, God, I must have been like six or seven when I saw that movie for the first time, which means my sister was even younger. <laughs> I went with my parents, my sister, and two of my older cousins. We're all sitting there. And the moment that the T-Rex breaks out of it, paddock my sister just up and leaves and she was out of there and then my dad ran after her and then by the time we hit the brachiosaurus scene i turn around and you know how they have the little rectangle windows or at least they used to and there's her little face in the rectangle window just watching from the back the entire time See, I, she didn't I like that great. i know you're a jurassic park fan because you said paddock 
<laughs> you know, I think not, I, know, yeah, I might know that entire movie <laughs> word for word to the point where if, if I was good at mimicking things or anything like that, I could probably repeat the same exact type of dinosaur sounds too. It's, <laughs> it's like if someone change the sound effect in that movie or even just like the tone to the slightest yeah. degree I would pick up on it when they released Jaws on DVD um, it was a, it was in 2000 it was a 25 year thing and they made a couple of sound changes nothing big but enough one of them being when the boat is sinking Quint's gone uh, Hooper's gone and it's just Brody and then the shark comes through the glass and they changed, as far as I could tell, and I had seen the film many times by that point, they changed the sound of the glass. And I was not so much angry as just jarred. I was like, what? 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 What did you do? Why did you do that? The movie won Best Sound. What are you doing fucking with it? Uh, yeah, I, I, I know what you mean. I would have that same problem. I distinctly remember some of the Jurassic Park dinosaur roars are used in the sh- or were used in the show Falling Skies. And it used to drive me nuts. That show was pretty bad eventually anyway, but that in particular got me so crazy every time I watched it. Um, yeah, because I mean, those those dinosaur sounds are pretty unique to Jurassic Park. They're really unique. You want to know one sad story, though? So there was a period of time where my phone ring was just the classic T-Rex roar. And one time I was on the Tintin red carpet, and you guys probably know red carpets. You never get any time with the filmmakers at all. I was at the very, very end of it. For whatever reason, that was one of the first red carpets I had ever covered, where the biggest guy there, Steven Spielberg, got there first, and he gave every single person on that carpet even the dead last person, at least one question. And it's like, what am I going to do? What am I going to ask Steven Spielberg when I have maybe 15 seconds with him? So I had a little camera in my hand and I held up my phone and I'm like, do you know what this is? (laughs) And I played him my, my T-Rex roar. And he's like, uh, and I, I shout it. I'm like, it's the roar from Jurassic Park. (laughs) Oh yeah. So that, that's an interesting video that I wound up with after that experience. (laughs) That's Um. the only, only personal encounter I've had with Steven Spielberg. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, I'm going to tell a quick red carpet story that has nothing to do with working the red carpet. It has to do with when I was, when I worked at the arc light as an usher and being handing out popcorn at the premiere of, uh, the astronaut farmer, Um, (laughs) at the, at the Cinerama dome. And we could see from the inside, there was someone, because, yeah, the stars, like, don't show up until late, you know, and then, like, Billy Bob Thorne and Virginia Madison showed up right before the movie, went in. As soon as the movie started, they left <laughs> out the front door. But we could see from inside, like, there was someone working down and doing that. Like, we were like, who is that? Giving an interview to everyone. Uh, and in the, in the line he turns and comes in was Bill Nye, the science guy. Apparently talking about the science of the astronaut farmer for, like, two hours. It was great. That's um, so random. Yeah. I've seen him him on the subway too, which is cool. Oh, yeah. I you, feel like I have seen him at some sort of press event before. Yeah, but if, uh, now this is like uh, um, a New York thing, I guess. In New York, seeing a celebrity on the subway uh, that's still cool, but it's less like seeing seeing a known person on the subway in Los Angeles is seeing th- anyone on the subway. <laughs> well, no, I that's know, not true. I know people. It's always it. packed. Yes, that's a. I have yet to ride the subway out here. Um, what was that? It's classist. When people say, oh, no one walks in L.A., it's like, no, you mean no, no rich white people walk in L.A. Yeah. Lots of lots of the, the, our public 
transit system is packed. It's crowded all the time. David, I'm doing very well. I don't need to take. I'm living in North Hills. We could go to it. We three of us could go to a strip club right now. If we don't like it, we go to the other one. It's no problem. Yeah. All right. I can't be riding subways. That's the thing about Los Angeles. It wasn't I was going to say, but my, the culture, I had a lot of culture shock uh, coming. Uh, I'm from St. Louis, but I lived in Chicago before here. Um, a lot of culture shock, culture shock. But one thing about Los Angeles is that the strip clubs aren't like in like the industrial part of town. They're just like they're right, right there, there. <laughs> next yeah. to like they're on the tourist. They're like on La Brea, you know, or on the Sunset Strip. You know, they're next to gas stations and just like they're just there. There are some in industrial areas. Oh, yeah, there, I know. I feel like yeah. I'm kind yeah. of numb to that because of New York. It's like, <laughs> yeah, I never sure. noticed this. I think yeah. that's because that's how it is in New York City, too. Yeah, maybe coming from, a, you know, a place like St. Louis, it's like, you know, you don't advertise the strip club. It's, yeah. Uh, uh, anyway. when, I, when I lived in Springfield, like, they had certain strip clubs, but, like, the one that everybody knew about is, yeah, outside of town a little uh-huh. bit. And it was called illusions and i was like that's about right i feel like that is maybe the most aptly titled strip club ever right yeah um all right so let's go back to the horror thing because i want to get into that like good segue uh and (laughs) uh at what age like did you realize you were like a horror fan specifically my experience that showed I, I was watching horror movies when I was very, very young. It's like sometimes my parents would I don't know, they would go out to a party or something and I would sleep over at my grandparents place. And this is when I was I was super young, probably seven and under. And at that point, you know, I we would sit in their room and we were watching a horror movie before bed. And I remember watching Poltergeist with them. I mean, that's that's where I was basically exposed to some of the classics like there's Poltergeist, The Exorcist, The Old and Rosemary's Baby, all that kind of stuff. But the one okay. that made me realize that your, I was a your horror... Your grandparents weren't, like, showing you a cannibal holocaust. No, no, that was not in the rotation. <laughs> and even when I hit that part of the rotation much later on in life, that was one... Because I do have a line. Like, I'll watch just about anything, but the torture porn and the, the, the gratuity for the sake of blood and gore, that's where I'm like, I don't know if I need that in my life. And yeah. that, that's a, a very unpleasant movie that I'll probably never, ever I've, revisit. I've actually never seen it because, really? yeah. because I know there's like real animal torture no, and stuff. Yeah. yeah, I don't need to see that. I, I can't, I really can't handle that yeah. kind of stuff. But I actually think I watched it for some sort of article I wrote maybe like seven, eight years ago and I just sucked it up and watched it and yeah. I regretted it. It's actually how I felt about the movie Martyrs too. Uh, Mar- Martyrs is, a, is one movie that I was so put off by the end of it. <laughs> like I walked around for a solid day or two after it just feeling like icky and gross and sad and I don't like that in my horror movies. Mm-hmm. What, that actually, that brings uh, brings something up. Like in, in reading uh you know, in reading Roger Ebert or or watching like Siskel and Ebert, when they would talk about horror movies, you know, they weren't opposed to loving. They they loved Halloween. They loved Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Didn't have a lot of patience for like a lot of other, other slasher movies. And one of the things they talked about was the way it made them feel, and it just made them feel tired and depressed and just like like. There was like they felt like there was no joy of filmmaking, mm-hmm. and so as, as a a horror person, what do you find yourself wanting to feel 
when you're watching a horror movie. I like the rush of feeling afraid, and I love the cinematic art of being able to craft a scare that will Mm -hmm. make you, I mean, even a jump scare that will make you jump in the theater or something where it'll send you home. And I think a great uh, recent example of this is Paranormal Activity. That's probably one of the first movies in a very, very long time that I would lay in bed at night and basically be staring out into the hallway just waiting for a bathroom light to flip on. I love that feeling. I love horror movies also as kind of escapism and just ways to ways to feel these things that are never going to knock on wood, never, ever going to happen to you in your life. I can't. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot. Well, no, this is definitely not not wood, not wood. But, you know, the the thought was there. So hopefully it counts. But uh, I just love the rush of going through something like that. And really, I like that exhaustion feeling after because you feel exhausted because it was and I like rides, too. It's probably connected. It's like you just went on this really intense ride. And then for me, that feeling at the end of it is like, oh, like that was great. And that is exactly how I felt at the end of A Quiet Place. Yeah. Yeah. When I saw uh, I feel like I've when I was younger, I rather um, elitistly I look down on horror movies. Like when I was a film, I feel like, I don't know, maybe I feel like a lot of film people I know when they were younger just thought like, Oh, horror movies. I know what those are all about. And then you realize, as David has said, like, well, there's also potential for tremendous style, maybe such that you can't find in any other film. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I feel like only in the last probably five, maybe 10 years have I started like really getting into horror and it's it's so strange like even like my favorite my favorite film of 2014 was the babadook which i adored and that is not that's not necessarily a fun horror movie like you know um you're next you're next or it follows or something like that but you know i i'm feeling engaged with the characters i'm feeling at times very claustrophobic because of and suffocated because of how they're feeling um but I am engaged in a way that precisely because of the genre, because of the roller coaster, the up and down, and because we're dealing with often extreme imagery, the highs can be a little bit higher, and then the drops can be a little bit further down uh, than most genres. And yeah, by the end, like, yeah, you could be like, you know, out of breath, you could feel drained, but in the same way that, like, you know, if you go to a, a good comedy show or something like that and you laugh all night long, you're like, That was great. I'm tired, but that was great. The Babadook leaves you with something to think about, too, which is why I appreciate it. It's it's very much, it challenges you to kind of look at yourself and your own inner demons. And I appreciate it when I can carry things like that with me. But, you know, assessing the horror genre like that, it kind of is fair. I mean, I'll defend it to no end and I'll watch some crappy horror movies and I'll have fun with them where I can understand if other people don't. But really, especially in a, most of the 90s, the early 2000s, a lot of the genre or at least studio released horror movies where it was getting to the widest possible audience was a lot of like rinse, wash, repeat. That's why we have so many classic slasher movies where their franchises are in the toilet and we're getting reboots of them because they drove those stories 
days into the ground and largely just to make money. So I feel like that that kind of negativity almost was earned by the industry. And I'm just so thankful that in recent years, they're finally and I credit Blumhouse a lot with this because Blumhouse embraced the idea of taking risks by spending smaller amounts of money and letting the filmmakers do their thing. Not everything Blumhouse has released has been a hit. And I think the Purge franchise is a great example of a franchise that spiraled out of control a little bit. But they still, especially with the BHL, BH Tilt arm now, where they're doing even smaller movies with smaller releases, but they're doing all these really interesting things. Good on them, because I think that's why we're finding so many gems lately. They're now, doing. I, I want to say real quick that the first Purge is my least favorite of the three Purges. I like the third. I like the, I, no, oh, the, the, the third makes me sad. It's uh, so bad. <laughs> I think the third one is better than the first one. The second one is the best. The second one is the movie that I wished the first one was while I was watching the I first one. I think that one. was the case with most viewers. <laughs> um, I'm curious to see. Uh, I, I don't know when you run this, but as we're recording it, I think we're going to get, I'm hopeful we're going to get some purge, uh, first purge content soon because we've oh, only yeah. got a super short uh, teaser, but it is about time. Yeah. yeah. Now, I've uh, seen none of them, but. <laughs> I don't, uh, and I don't know why, because you would dig it. I think I would. But I really. Here's the thing. I haven't seen any of them, but every time, first off, their ad campaigns are always great. And then uh, when the idea of, oh, the first purge, I'm especially interested in that. There's no guarantee I'm going to see it, I guess. But like the idea is like the first purge. That's got to be there's potential for for comedy in there of someone being like. Uh, <laughs> that, is, that is this new movie. Yeah. It's the first. It's yeah. the first yeah. purge, and it's genius. I was hoping that they would go down that route. Yeah. Right after the first purge movie came out, I'm like, you know, this is a really interesting concept. I want to know about the mentality behind it yeah. in order to make this thing happen. And you could approach it from so many angles. There's yeah. there's the comedy. There's the horror. Then it could also be a great political drama because I would just yes. love to be locked in a in a closed door room and just hear that discussion and whatever you need to pass that in order to make it happen but i'm kind of hopeful with this but if you've seen any of the marketing for this new movie it it is very on the nose with what they're going for and i i wonder if that's going to take the the fun of horror that i like out of it the escapism i like out of it but that's you know i i I tend to be okay with like on the nose political commentary and horror because part of me is like well i'd rather have it be here than in a drama because at least there's stuff to distract me and and Um, and of course the some of the trappings of horror can allow you to explore stuff in an an even deeper way than than drama i'm not done talking about the perch oh okay i'm sorry (laughs) because i do think the third one has that comedy the third one is uh, the most of the most satire of I think the entire existence of the purge is, is satire. The third is the most satirical one. Um, and I think we needed that second. The first one was so frustrating to me because I was like, you've created this crazy idea and we have to spend the entire time in one house. I want to see the fucking mayhem. And that's what the second one was. Uh, but I'm nervous about the first purge because it's different, a different director. He's still the writer. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, uh, I liked that, that we had a studio franchise that was a writer director's franchise that he had yeah. made three in a row. And James DeMonaco is a yeah. smart, talented guy. He yeah. had so many. I, I remember talking to him for purge anarchy and he had so many great ideas at the time. And then I think that's why, 
why I was so disappointed by uh, the Purge election year. They talk about a movie that that made me feel bad after. I just remember walking out of that screening mad because I was disappointed, but mad because of the behavior in that movie, too. I don't think there's any more obnoxious character in the past, what is it, three, four years now than the candy bar girl who who flips out and goes back to the convenience store because he wouldn't give her a candy. She just shouts about the candy bar. It was the most absurd thing I've ever seen. But that's why it's so satisfying to see her and her friends get totally fucked up by the... uh, the ambulance driver. Well, lady. yeah, yeah. That that was the best part of that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like that. This is especially fun if you haven't seen it. And I'm not even being sarcastic. You're just like candy bar girl and ambulance guy. Like, <laughs> ambulance lady. <laughs> ambulance lady. Pardon me. No, there wasn't the ambulance lady. Yeah, she was the, the one who. The, yeah. And back to the candy bar girl. One of the most ridiculous things about that character and her friends was that their car was covered in Christmas lights. Uh-huh. Talk about a really easy way to open and close your car doors. <laughs> <laughs> like, how was that even set? Up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. So Tyler, you were going to ask Perry something that wasn't about the purge. I do not recall because I could just talk about the purge. <laughs> have, uh, oh, what uh, I was going to say is is about Blumhouse. You know, when you're when you're you know a film fan and you're talking with other film fans, like the thing that, especially you know if you're in your early 20s, all you ever do is like, or at least I is just like bemoan like ah these studios with their big budgets like for the price of one big movie you could make like. 10 smaller movies and just like and there's a company that's actually doing that now it's within genre and there's nothing wrong with that but like it'd be awesome if they did that with just you know dramas in general but like for them to embrace it and see how well it's paying off Mm -hmm. is really exciting I hope more studios do it I do too and that was always an idea that really bothered me especially because you know think of a franchise like Transformers talk about you know I know some people out there have fun with them I personally think they're garbage movies and those movies have just astronomical budgets. Think about how many great little dramas we could get from one Transformers movie. And that whole concept hurt me even more after I tried to make my own feature. Uh And just thinking how hard it was to make that itty bitty amount of money to try to bring to life a story that we had spent five years of our lives on, thought was so good. And then all of a sudden it's like you become a hot famous name in a studio or you have a hot property. I mean, think about it. Like emojis. Like emojis are super hot right now. Let's just throw money at that silly idea and make a buck off a movie. I, this is going to sound very childish, but that's not fair and that's not right. And it shouldn't happen. When I stepped off the bus here in Hollywood, they told me this is not what it's going to be. Can you tell us anything about the movie you tried to make? Uh, yeah, oh, we made it. Oh, it Child it. Eater, Child Eater, that's what it's called. Child Eater is available on Amazon and some other platforms right now, and I am, I'm really proud of it. It was probably one of the best experiences I've ever had in my entire life. The whole reason I went to film school is because I had gone a couple years critiquing other movies, and it mm-hmm. hit this point where I said to myself, this doesn't feel right, and I think my reviews will be better if I know what this feels like and know what it takes, and that's why I went to film 
film school. And then right after I got out of film school, one of the shorts we made got into South by Southwest and we were so excited about that. And I was really close friends with the director that I worked on, worked on that one with. And we're like, you know what? Like, let's just do it. Let's turn this into a feature and give it a shot. And that's exactly what we did. And all of a sudden one day came where we were able to get not even like most of the budget. It was like a good chunk of money, but it was still only a fraction of the budget. And our mentality was like, we have it. It's going to disappear if we don't go now, now, now. So we did. We just kind of ripped the Band-Aid off and did it and swiped our credit cards for a couple of months, which was mortifying. But <laughs> we made a movie and a, a movie that, yeah, it's it's rough around the edges at certain points. I'll admit that. But I am so damn proud of that thing. But I feel like horror fans are specifically forgiving of that. Um, they can like, be. They, well, I guess <laughs> they that's can true. Be. Yeah. It's also, they're a passionate fan base. Uh, one as I'm saying other. that, I'm scrolling through the Amazon reviews and, yeah. and the star, the star count. <laughs> Yeah, I guess that's true. Um, People are pretty shitty. It's rough to be on the other side (laughs) of that. And I mean, even just having switched from writing articles to being on YouTube and fielding those comments, it hurts. It can hurt. And sometimes you know that it's silly and you should compartmentalize and learn to ignore a certain subsection of them. But it's difficult. And it kind of makes me feel bad now a little when I review a movie super poorly. So I'll never lie and say I liked a movie to not hurt somebody's feelings. But I definitely, when I'm harsh on a movie, I choose my words carefully, respectfully, and honestly. I was thinking just today if I'm too lenient uh, on movies. Because I was like thinking about various films that have come out uh, in the last year or so that I'm like, I didn't hate that movie. I don't like it, but I didn't hate it. And like, and in my review, you can tell it's not so much that I'm hemming and hawing, but I am trying to find the positive where I can. And... There, and part of me is like, ah, am I just like an old softy? And it's like, eh, I think it's probably better to like try to show people grace and the benefit of the doubt, given how hard, even even in a studio situation, how hard it is to make a movie. Most movies, even the worst ones out there, I mean, I'll go back to Transformers. Even Transformers has excellent visual effects. Just because I don't like the movie overall doesn't mean there's nothing good in it. And I'm also a firm believer of the fact that even though the large majority of people out there give every movie a negative, this one particular movie, let's say a negative review, if it's got a one on Rotten Tomatoes, that still means that someone out there likes yeah. it. There's someone out there out there that is a fan of every single movie ever made. So yeah. I, I try to always keep that in the back of my mind. I, think I like I've, the idea that you find like there's the one review and it's and it's all negative. But it's like there was a guy that looked kind of like my uncle in the scene, <laughs> and I liked that. Um, I uh, yeah. Uh, uh, I so I uh, keep since 2002. I've kept a list of every movie that I've seen that was released in that year from my favorite to my least favorite. So I have a a list. Very impressive. I have a list per year, but when I go back to before, like we, we started this podcast in 2007, but we weren't really like, I guess critics, like seeing a lot of movies and going to screen and stuff until like 2011 or so. And so when I go back and look at like, I was, I was so much more lenient when I wasn't seeing 300 something movies a year. Like, like even 10 years ago, it's like, yeah, I, you know, I'm a Danny Boyle fan. I like Slumdog Millionaire, but it was like my number five of the year. There's like, there's no way I would be so, I would be, I would be way too mean to Slumdog, Slumdog Millionaire if I saw it for the first time now. Uh, and so maybe I, uh, maybe I do need to, to step back, but I, but I wanted to, uh, you said something that, that really interested me about, um, 
feeling that your reviews would be, would be better if you went to this experience. But I've often wondered if sometimes there becomes a sort of like miss the forest for the trees type of element to people who, you know, who, uh, who have been through the trenches, like maybe, maybe, maybe some critical distance is helpful. I, I would say so. I don't know. I think no matter what your experience is, just either building yourself up as a critic, getting experience as a filmmaker, going off and doing another career and then coming back to it. I mean, we're all a product of our experiences and our environments and we all have personal tastes. I mean, that's why that's why it frustrates. I think one of the one of the feedback, one of the comments that bothers me the most on reviews that we post is when someone says, uh, oh, well, I, I don't trust you anymore because I didn't agree with you on this specific movie. Right. We don't have to agree on everything. Could you imagine if a critic out there was was so strict and rigid and they were so predictable with every single... And you knew every single time you were going to line up with them. That That's not a human being. That's a two-dimensional writer. What's the point in that? And that, that's, what makes, that's what makes film criticism so special is that it's not a science. It's, it's an art that's yeah. personal. Uh, yeah, that's why I specifically seek out critics that I tend to not agree with. If they can write well and yeah. they can cons- and, and I and they consistently make good cases for their opinions, even if they're consistently different than mine, that's my favorite type of critic to read. Yeah, I think it's you know different than mine is fine. Uh, I have to be vaguely sympathetic towards at least the way they are approaching film. Like, there are people, like, you and I don't agree on everything, David. We apparently agree on more than our listeners would like. Uh, until yeah, the, day, until the day we disagree, and then they're like, I don't like this at all. It's yeah. very uncomfortable. But, um, yeah, we need to fight more. Okay. Except, we accept not. I don't think we do. <laughs> what do you think of that? <laughs> I think because you and I are scared now because our fight over the girl with the dragon tattoo, which has now been... Six years yeah. or something got so personal <laughs> yeah. that I think we have maybe maybe we need to wade back into those waters of being willing to all right to fight each other. Clearly, I have to listen to, to that episode. <laughs> um, yeah, 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 it's still out there. We have yeah. not taken it down. <laughs> um, but yeah, and so, uh, but yeah, like I don't, I, I don't agree with you on everything, but I can see the way you approach movies and giving them, you know, I know that you give them the benefit of the doubt. You try to see what the filmmaker was attempting and all that sort of thing. You don't insist that a movie just cater to you. And then there are plenty of people, even, even actual critics or, or professional or semi-professional critics, uh, that I read. I'm just like, you came in with a very specific idea of Mm -hmm. what you wanted and we all do, but you seemed unable or unwilling to drop it when the film quickly became something else and it's something that uh, exhausts me and, and that's when I tend to ha- that's when I get to a point where I'm like I don't trust this person anymore. Yeah that's a that's a sad situation to be stuck in and I, I understand that happens to a degree where you can't help it just because I mean it, it doesn't even matter with internet and you know because we're talking about that a lot lately with Last Jedi and how Last Jedi you come up with all these predictions and then basically Ryan Johnson like poo-poos your predictions and you're pissed about it but even without the internet culture it's just human nature to go into a movie or 
into any any kind of experience, any book, any TV show with expectations. And it can be difficult to process it when right. those expectations aren't met. But that is the most exciting thing about yeah. cinema to me. I want my expectations to be surpassed and subverted in ways yeah. that I didn't expect. And maybe things that, that make me feel funny about what I'm watching and enjoying. But as long as it's a surprise and it's a justified one great i feel like a lot of a lot of people at least in some of the circles that i've that i've run in um it's like the question of why never comes up it's only that like i this did that and that's and i don't like it and it's like okay but yeah but why did it do that if it subverted expectations like well that's a big deal it's always a big deal to, especially something like last jedi which subverted entire you know, hanging threads and, and plot lines and that sort of thing. Um, and, uh, so like to me, you, there are so many people in that instance, uh, that were just, just mad at the very fact of it, that they didn't take the time to ask why Ryan Johnson would do that. They, it, maybe they ask it just long enough and they're, they're like, he just did it to piss us off. It's like, yeah, I'm sure that's it. <laughs> Yeah, he did it because he hates Star Wars. Yep, undoubtedly, that's why people make movies. That's why people devote two years of their life to making a movie. Is like I'm going to get this franchise that's going to make my career. But anyway, yeah, that's like an Andy Kaufman level committing (laughs) to the bit uh, at that point. Um, But you know, it's funny. I was uh, when you were talking about subverting expectations, and you guys are talking about Star Wars fans not liking that. Uh, And I guess that's certainly with Collider and with even with Battleship Retention, like we're our audiences are people who tend to watch a ton of movies and have these kind of opinions. But I wonder if you're, you know, a sort of, if you're writing for, I don't know, the, the times or whatever, whichever times, whatever, like mainstream publication where like, uh, you, you're not assuming that your readership is someone who goes to the movies multiple times a week. You know what I'm saying? Like there's a different, like, uh, you know, we get we, we movie people here get mad when a trailer gives too much away, right? Sure. But the average moviegoer wants that. The average moviegoer is saying, "I'm going to go see five or six movies a year. Yeah. It's going to cost me and my family sixty bucks. I want to know what I'm getting." Which is, you know, why the mainstream people hated uh, Cabin in the Woods. That's that Cabin oh, yeah. in the Woods is the worst movie for the, the five time a year moviegoer because that's the person who wants to know exactly what they're going to see. Oh, I love that movie. I love that movie so much. I think about it a lot with uh, with spoilers, though, because obviously we're constant. We're talking about movies day and night. And, you know, Last Jedi, for example, if all of a sudden you're on a live show and you blurt out a big fat spoiler for Last Jedi, it's it's difficult because is it right or wrong as a movie channel that covers this stuff constantly? There needs to be a line where we could talk about it freely. Otherwise, we can't further our conversations along. But there is a significant amount of people who maybe not even by choice just can only afford five or six movie movie ticket prices are absolutely insane. Maybe they want to save their money and not go to see it in a theater and instead just buy it and own it when it comes out on Blu-ray. So I'm just constantly thinking, you know, how 
how much should I actually censor my sh- myself with spoilers? And I think I've gone to a little bit of an extreme with that, but yeah. it's with that idea in mind that really most people out there, maybe not necessarily the core audience that watches our shows, but so many people out there really don't. I mean, we, I see two, three movies a week. I don't think there's yeah. very many people who do that. Yeah. And it's, I do think that there is, I won't even talk about like the, the idea of like uh, time, you know, like after, like after a certain point, we shouldn't worry about spoilers. Anymore. That's, I'm putting that aside, but just the sheer number of things that people consider spoilers. Like when I wrote my review for Blade Runner, uh, 2049, I mentioned in my plot synopsis, which I try to keep, I tried to keep pretty vague. I mentioned that Ryan Gosling is a replicant. Which is established about a scene and a half in, maybe two scenes in. And I was like, I recognize that that could be a spoiler as far as the marketing. But as far as the movie, it's, I don't think it's treated as a huge twist. It's just treated right. as, a, as a reveal and just part of who the character is. And uh, there were people that got uh, upset with me for that. I don't know. Do you think that that uh, would qualify as a spoiler? That doesn't surprise me. What I tend to do in order to shield myself from divulging anything that's a spoiler is I'll read the official synopsis and I'll watch the trailer. And if something is in there, then it's fair game in my mind. But just recently, we reviewed the movie Blockers. And I said something like, oh, it's about uh, three parents who try to stop who who, I think I, I, I misphrased it. And I said, it's about three parents who stopped their three their three teenage daughters from enacting a sex pact on prom and they're like well now i don't have to see the movie and i'm like whoa i even heard of like like uh uh uh, opinion like say say tyler we're finally gonna watch buffy the vampire slayer and i say like oh wait till you get to you know season two episode 17 or whatever and he'd be like dude like, you know, I, I've even seen that kind of reaction. I have someone in the office who does that, too. I'm, the movie that I, I was talking about is Escaping Me. Oh, no, I remember what it is. Um, it was Jigsaw. Uh-huh. <laughs> Did you see I didn't. No. I figured you didn't see Jigsaw. <laughs> in, in Jigsaw, I mean, all right, here we go. Spoiler alert for Jigsaw, if you care about this. Jigsaw. Which listeners can find on the... <laughs> 10 worst movies of 2017 right. for Battleship Retention. But I, yes, by all means, I'm sorry, go on. Jigsaw was very disappointing, but <laughs> it did something pretty clever at the end, and in order to give the movie credit, I was not going to let that whole review go by and not praise them for taking that risk and surprising me with a nice, and I used the word twist, and the person who was editing that review for me was like, well, now I know there's a twist that's not okay. And I'm like, whoa. I and it, it's frustrating because it feels like that's too much, but I also see his point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I think I've um, I've gotten to a place where I'm just okay with spoilers now. You know, I don't seek them out, but I just right. like I've, I've realized that the the anxiety of trying to avoid them is usually not worth whatever I think I'm preserving. You you can't do what we do and completely avoid spoilers because really how many news stories do we cover regularly where it's uh, like so-and-so rumor of so-and-so plot point and you don't really know until the movie comes out if it was true or not but there's tons of rumors that I've covered that turned out to be major plot spoilers in movies. uh, One of the things that um, my friend and I were talking about when studios successfully keep secrets. It's very rare. And one of them didn't even happen to me. It happened to David when he went to see, and maybe you saw it as well, The Woods. 
oh, which yeah. was then rele- revealed to be Blair Someone Witch. Someone spoiled that for me. Did they? Yeah, yeah. Oh. yeah. I saw that at uh, at Comic Con. Yeah, I guess two two years ago, and before uh, I went to that screening, someone told me what it was. Oh. Well, it was that, very cool. That one, yeah. Uh, for the listeners, and uh, I mean, Perry, you were there, but you obviously didn't get. So you, you they walked us in, mm-hmm. and the theater had a, a huge, like, light up, like, standee that said "The Woods," right? Mm. Uh, People wearing and, shirts, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and everything said "The Woods," and then you watch the movie, and the title isn't. It's a the main title is at the end. So like, you're watching the whole movie, and it's sort of dawning on you, like, oh shit, this is like. At first, I was like, oh, this is a sort of Blair Witch homage, and then I realized, mm-hmm. no, I'm watching a Blair Witch movie, and at the end, it says Blair Witch, and then you walk out. They've all changed their shirts to Blair Witch, and that big light up sign now says Blair Witch. It was very, very cool. Even though I knew what was happening, <laughs> it was still a very clever marketing tactic. Yeah. That yeah. sadly didn't do anything for the movie because right. it didn't do very well. Yeah, I and mean, that's like making a splash at Comic Con. Clearly, it yeah. didn't work for Scott Pilgrim. It, it didn't work for the it, woods. It, it did. didn't work for uh, for Dread either. Right. It yeah. didn't work for Dread. I'm just thinking about all the movies. It didn't work for Death Note. It didn't work for Project Almanac. So it didn't work for <laughs> Cowboys and Aliens. Maybe it didn't work for Star Trek Beyond. Don't screen your movie at San Diego Comic Con. I mean, screen it for me because I just want to see it. But clearly, <laughs> it's not going to help your movie at the box office yeah I was thinking about uh, it's fine it's fine we can you think about Project Almanac it, uh, always <laughs> always I was I was hoping someone would mention it I don't even remember what that is what is Project Almanac Project Almanac was the time traveling found footage movie that Dean Israelite directed before he did Power Rangers oh it's actually it's it's I had fun with it. It's pretty good. It's not okay. the greatest thing in the world, but I think uh, many gave it a very hard time right out the gate for it being a found footage style movie or a shaky oh. cam style movie and just, you know, kind of didn't give it a chance. That, I feel like the, any, I mean, any style can be neutral, I think. I mean, yes, I understand if it's right in the middle and it's just like, okay, it's just one thing after another. But to me, like, like Chronicle, I think, is a pretty good use of found footage. Um, every once in a while, yeah, they stretch it a bit uh, to accommodate it. But for the most part, uh, and yeah, could it have worked as just a straightforward narrative? Probably. But by doing this, it adds an, an interesting element. And uh, and yeah, like with, with any genre or style, like all it takes is one movie to do it really well. And then you're like, oh, yeah, now but I the, remember. But that's the thing. Like it's easy to say in retrospect, but when there's a glut of a certain type of sure. thing, mm-hmm. you, sure. I I I would try not to. I, I think I would still want to try to. I never saw Project Almanac. I would have wanted to give it a chance, but I could understand being sort of reflexively like fed up. You know, I remember back when like when Mad Men was on, and then John Hamm would keep showing up on like Comedy Thirty Rock stuff, or yeah. like Tim and Eric or, or like Children's Hospital or whatever. I don't know if he did a Tim and Eric, but like that kind of stuff. At a certain point, it was like, Fuck, I get it. John Hamm's funny. I'm not. I'm over the now. Novelty of John Hamm being funny. Yeah. Now, if I went back and watched those Children's Hospital episodes now, I'd be like, yeah. "Oh yeah, that was funny." But at the time, I was like, "Give me a break." I think that's. I think the word novelty is what what I'm latching on to. There is that he like he's doing good work in those things, mm-hmm. and so it's something that like, but it's treated as a novelty. It's like, okay, well, once we get over the novelty, then we can actually look back and see if there was anything of merit there. And so I think with something like found footage it has been around long enough and there have been enough good movies within that, 
that I think we can say like, yeah, okay, the novelty has certainly worn off, but and there, but like anything else, there are good movies and there are good examples and bad examples. I'm a big fan of The Bay. Did you ever see The oh, Bay? I did see The Bay. I remember that. Uh, who directed Barry that? Barry Levinson. Yeah, Barry Levinson. I covered that at a New York Comic Con actually one year. I didn't know what to expect. I was like, okay, Barry Levinson making a found footage. Let's give it a shot. And I thought it was great. And I yeah. thought it was a great use of found footage that like. Uh, the, one of the characters is spe- has specifically found this footage so that she can assemble it, and I thought like, yeah, okay, that's helpful because a big part of the, a big question for me with any of these movies like, boy, this sure does work out well. Like they really capture every part of the narrative, don't hmm. they? That's really something. Well, that's always footage. the thing too is justifying it, yeah. justifying a ca- uh, someone running around and holding a camera in their yeah. hand the entire time, which has become easier now that we're all like constant reflexive self-documentarians mm-hmm. like yeah. found footage movies now can have so many different camera angles like um i mean blood witch did that but also what was the, in the second vhs vhs the, 2 is fantastic <laughs> well okay, i like I know the, every the single Gareth, one. Uh, evans right yeah that well that's the best the one, the, fir- one. The, fir- the first one's really good it's camera through through an eye implant which was very clever the second one is the helmet cam the the oh, ride, in a, by ride, the in a, guy. ride in a park great yes, short and then one. the third one is safe haven and that's done documentary style and then the fourth is just it's a uh, Alien abduction slumber party. It's from Jason Eisner, right. and it's just kids with a handheld camera. And at one point, it becomes a dog camera, and they strap it on the dog. That's right. Really, just I four great examples of really well done found footage with a crappy wraparound to stitch them all together. That was that was that. one thing that that uh, I haven't really seen. I actually can't think of a single horror anthology that does a good wraparound segment that brings it all together. Yeah, that's a good. Good, uh, that would be a good challenge for the listeners to see if they can come up with one. Oh, I've um, got one. Uh, but real quick, the thing I was going to say about Safe Haven is that there's like 20 different cameras in it because they each have like two cameras. They have like a body cam mm-hmm. and they're carrying a cam and there's security footage all over the cult compound. Safe Haven it's, is nuts. It's so cool. Did you ever nuts. see it? I didn't. I haven't seen uh, any of the VHS. That might be one of the best short films I've ever seen in my life. Hmm. I was I was shocked by that. I'm I like all four of them, but I must have gone back and rewatched yeah. V. I mean, I own VHS too, and I just fast forward to Safe Haven a lot <laughs> yeah. because it's incredible. It's so cool. Um, who, uh, wait, who directed? Wait, wasn't it? Was it called The Sacrament? Oh God, that, that's, oh, that's like another cult one. That was, yeah, was, um, was Ty West. Ty West, yeah. that's right. Yes, uh, uh, yeah, which and you didn't care for, right? St- yeah, starring uh, uh, a friend of the show, AJ Bowen. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah, that was a that was a dreadful movie. Mm. <laughs> that's unfortunate because um, the story sounded so good, and that actor who plays like the cult leader is an actor. Right. I've enjoyed him in other things. Yeah, um, he's the the gas station owner from No Country for Old Men. Yeah, yeah. he's, he, also, yeah, he's uh, great. He's Sweet Dave in uh, The Hateful Eight. Oh, yep. that's right. Yeah. yeah. Talk about an unpleasant movie. The Sacrament. Yeah, yeah. That, that was one of those movies where, I mean, you know, there wasn't anything that bad about it. I thought it was pretty well done, but I walked away feeling just bummed and like I had no fun whatsoever in that. Yeah. And it does seem if you're going to you're going to make something that's so heavily influenced by an actual yeah. event like 
do something with it. Like it felt yeah. kind of exploitative, especially exploitative. Yeah. American Horror Story this season tried to do something with that, and you know, I don't really think that they nailed it. But there's some really creative flair to it. I mean, really, the whole thing with how they approached the election. I was very nervous about that at the very beginning. Was the first episode of that season feels extremely and obnoxiously heavy-handed, yeah. and you think you know exactly the path it's going to go down, and then it starts to play around with certain things, certain things that don't necessarily even tie into the election. It's a lot of mm. true crime that they mm. reenact, and some of that stuff was done in a pretty clever manner, and even though it's an extreme version of just the cult mentality and how someone can be manipulated by a bigger idea or, or a more manipulative, powerful person... It was done in a way that kind of got the wheels in your head turning, and it made you understand huh. both perspectives a little more, which I kind of appreciated in the end. I haven't watched American Horror Story since Freak Show, and I especially I didn't want to watch because, like you're talking about the pilot, I was like, I'm not ready for this to be entertainment yet. That like, was exactly still, what I said at the yeah. end of that episode because I had already committed for my own channel just because I've, I've watched American Horror Story since day one, and I've covered it since day one, and I said, I'm reviewing episode one of the <laughs> season right now. And I'm going to do it every single week until the end. So I was committed no matter what. But when I finished episode one, I said to myself off camera, like, what what did I get myself into? I'm going to be miserable doing this. But by episode three and four, they really got into a surprisingly unique groove. That is kind of how I felt about Hannibal, which I think is an an astonishing show. But as as I've said, um, it's a show that not that it was released on Netflix or anything, but when I caught up with it, you know, a bunch of episodes were available online. And so I watched a bunch of episodes in a row and immediately I was like, I can't do that. This is not a bingeable show. No, it's really not. Like, not merely because of the imagery, but just the tone and the emotion is just so, again, it's gorgeous. It's a mm-hmm. really wonderful, meaningful show, but it's just so, everything is just so thick. And I'm like, Maybe two episodes in a row. Maybe. If I do three, <laughs> like, I need a nap yeah. for, like, 12 hours. Um, yeah, I love I love Hannibal. Like, as I've said, as I uh, alluded to earlier, Buffy the Vampire Slayer is always my favorite TV show, but I think I need, it's, as much as it's hard for me to say, it, Hannibal might be better. Uh, that's how much I love Hannibal. I got through uh, two seasons of Hannibal, and then I think I stopped just for work reasons. Something mm-hmm. else became the priority, and I never went back to it, but I've always been meaning to go back and just watch it all. It's a lot of well, good stuff in that third it's, season. It's also one of the rare shows that ended before it was intended to, but that the, the third season finale really mm-hmm. works as a series finale. Yeah. Like People say that about other stuff, I think just to like make themselves feel better, but it like honestly, the whole I spent the whole third season going, God, I hope I Amazon or Netflix or someone picks us up and then I watched the third season finale and I was like you know what leave it like this is actually kind of perfect you know it's a really good horror show that's on that you guys would probably like if I, I mean it's not really directly connected to Hannibal but it's just that that kind of really thoughtful character driven heavy style horror and it's actually on sci-fi nobody's watching it and I keep pumping it because I think it's so so good is Channel Zero have you that, ever heard of Channel Zero? Oh, I know the image of the teeth kid or that, whatever. That was season one. So oh. each season is based on a different creepy pasta. Oh. And okay. they've done some incredible things. The first one was Candle Cove, and it's great. That's the one with the teeth monster. The second one, which is my favorite, I haven't finished the third, which is Butcher's Block, but the Te- second one, No End House, is 
incredible. John Carroll Lynch is in that, and oh. obviously he is yeah. great in everything, so it's going to be no surprise that he he is just so... He, he strikes such a weird balance between... Because he plays one of the characters' fathers, fatherly but chilling, and ah, oh, really, everything in that season was great. Actually, I, have, I was going to warn Tyler not to look up... I looked up the Tooth Monster. It's horrible. And, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. That's... Uh, that's going to stay with me. Um, <laughs> well, we should start thinking about wrapping up, but we, you, you've talked about videos a couple of times. I mentioned your, your title as, uh, I've already forgot what it is, Clyder Video Senior Editorial Producer. I always have to think about it, and people <laughs> ask me all the time, and I'm like, ah, uh, um, Senior Editorial Producer. So talk about what do you do at Clyder. Um, what don't I do at Collider right now? <laughs> um, a little of everything, and I'm actually really lucky that I do a little of everything. It makes the days really busy, but I still write for Collider.com a little bit. I just wrote a feature on Ready Player One, the book first film idea, and I, I love writing still, but definitely I am very drawn to the idea of expressing my opinions and talking about movies on camera, on the YouTube channel, in that community so much. So I do uh, appear on a lot of the shows that we do, but mainly behind the scenes, what my job is right now is producing in every single capacity imaginable, whether it's show running one particular show or just working on bigger picture type products that really affects the brand overall. So I've had my hand in so many different things that, especially thinking back to when I first started doing movie blogging, when all of these outlets were owned independently, I'll just, I'll never forget. There was one person who I would look at and say, like, when I get to your level, I'm going to be successful. Like, I'm going to feel good about where I am. And the fact that I've so far surpassed that is, it is astounding to me what this industry has grown into and it's so exciting to be a part of it well someday we'll get there david <laughs> I, mean, I, I i enjoy doing this as a side gig i really like my job <laughs> um, but the listeners will never know what my job is that's right uh anyway this has been a blast uh, we should definitely have you on uh, again. Absolutely. We yeah, feel this like was we've barely scratched the surface. Um, you listeners, you know, you can find us at BattleshipRetention.com. That's where you can find all, all sorts of uh, movie reviews. Uh, I'm trying to think what I, uh, I just posted my review of uh, You Were Never Really Here. I'm uh, in the minority. Didn't care Didn't care much for it. Uh, did, did, you you like, did you see it? I didn't see that one. Okay. Uh, I need to. Lynn Ramsey. Lynn Ramsey? Yeah, uh, yeah. I like Lynn Ramsey. Um, uh, and it, it was going for a while, but I think mm-hmm. the, the third act just grew tedious to me. But you can ch- check out the review. Uh, also, my review of Lean on Pete, which is a great movie. That I um, really want to say. It's really good. But yeah, uh, you know, bring some tissues. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a tearjerker. Um, all right, that's all at BattleshipRetention.com. You can email us at David at BattleshipRetention.com or Tyler at BattleshipRetention.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Davey Pretension at Tyler Pretension. Uh, your other podcast, Tyler, More Than One Lesson, is back. It is. Is it back to stay back in full force? Uh, yes, I would say so. Um, I can't guarantee there will be an episode every week, but there will be for the foreseeable future. And more than one lesson.com is where you find that black um, Panther. We're talking about black Panther this, uh, this week. Fantastic. Uh, so that's that Perry. Where can people find you? Oh, all over the place. Uh, at P Nemiroff on Twitter and Instagram on the Collider video YouTube channel, of course. And then you can also, uh, check out my own YouTube channel where there's lots of channel zero coverage. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Check out all the teeth monsters Boy, you can handle. I, uh, <laughs> I do regret looking that up. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, thanks again for being here. Thank you. Thank you at home for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. 
This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.